Second Chronicles chapter 12, if you'll join me there this evening as we continue our study in Second Chronicles together. Here in chapter 12, we pick up with the reign of Rehoboam in chapter 12 here. It tells us, now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. So uh, Rehoboam, as we saw last time, becomes the successor to Solomon, and he unfortunately also becomes the culprit, the actual individual, humanly, who becomes responsible for the divided kingdom. At this point in time now, historically, we now have the southern kingdom referred to as Judah and the northern kingdom referred to as Israel. Remember, the ten northern tribes is what is referred to as Israel. Jeroboam becomes their first leader and sort of king that would rule over them. Rehoboam becomes the one who's the first leader over the southern kingdom of Israel, or southern kingdom, which of course is referred to as Judah, which consists of obviously the tribe of Judah as well as Benjamin and stayed faithful and loyal to the line of David of which Rehoboam came from as the son of Solomon. And Rehoboam, unfortunately, uh, didn't make a lot of the best choices. Uh, And here we begin to see in verse 1 that the time came to pass uh, during his reign when he began, it says, to establish the kingdom, but more he began to strengthen himself. That is, he began to gain some stability. He started to experience some success and prosperity and began to kind of become strong and stable in his own rulership that during those things, a time of experience, success and prosperity, that as the result of that in connection to it, verse one, it says he also forsook the law of the Lord and ultimately as he turned away from the Lord as a leader, he then led the rest of the nation on the same path that he himself was headed on. And here again, we see this unfortunate pattern, which shows up many times throughout the word of God, when strength and success can kind of be, it seems, a temptation for people to forsake the Lord. And we're specifically told here, it was during the time that he was strengthening himself, when he became established in the midst of his own strength, he began to to think that he didn't need God's help, that he didn't need to do things God's way, and that began to be the temptation in his life where he started forsaking the word of God and even turning the nation away from God and turning the nation away from the ways of God and God's will, what was recorded in his word. And sadly, in some ways, you know, we can lay many parallel uh, examples uh, of what's happened in our own nation, even here in our country, when uh, America began to become strong and prosperous and blessed. It's amazing how the more we began to experience that, it seemed that began to become kind of almost a temptation for us to forsake the ways of the Lord and to turn away from the Lord, think somehow that we created our own success and establishment as a nation that was once founded upon God and trust upon him. And and here we see Rehoboam doing that. He now forsakes the law of the Lord. He turns away and abandons God's word. All of Israel, the nation begins to follow him in this path. And verse 2, we begin to see some of the repercussions of that. It says, And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. That was, again, the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah at that time. He came up against Jerusalem. Notice, very important word, verse 2, because 
they had transgressed against the Lord. So the Bible tells us that it was at this time historically that Shishak, the king of Egypt, and Egypt became kind of a perennial enemy of Israel together with you know the Philistines and other people groups like this. And here once again we see the ruler of Egypt coming up against Jerusalem and the people of God and were specifically told the reason why was because they had transgressed against the Lord. And again, take notice of the word transgress. That's always a very strong word, particularly used in the Old Testament, to emphasize something even stronger than what we might say is um, you know, sin. Uh, sin is basically a term that means to miss the mark, which means that if there were a bullseye in the back of the room, I could fire arrows all day long and even be perhaps pretty talented and make my best effort to keep trying to hit the target and hit the bullseye. But eventually, because I'm an imperfect human being, even the best intentions will eventually fail at some point. Eventually, you're going to miss the mark, which means that you can sin without even wanting to sin. That's why the Bible says there's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Even if you don't want to be a sinner, you will become a sinner. <laughs> you know, the Bible says we are born sinful by nature. We just prove that out as we live out our existence because we are people of imperfection and failure and we have a sinful inclination. We all eventually start to miss the mark as we live out our lives. We say things we shouldn't. We do things that we don't want to do, but in our weakness, we do them. Uh, we think things that we don't want to think even at times because of the weakness of our own. But transgression is a term that speaks of, of willful, arrogant disobedience. The idea being where transgression is not, I failed and I, I wish I wouldn't have failed. Transgression is, here's the line in the sand, don't step over it. And basically transgression says, I don't care where the line in the sand is, I'm stepping over it anyway. Transgression is a willful act of, uh, of the you know, individual's volition and free will to say, I understand where the line is, but I don't care, I'm crossing over the line anyway. And it's just a willful act of disobedience to just transgress. Something idea of much more stronger in its term of rebellion. And this is the idea here that at this time, because the people had transgressed against the Lord, they were willfully, consciously making decisions to disobey God. They were rejecting clear light that they had of what was right and wrong. And because of that, they made themselves vulnerable to what? Well, verse 2 tells us they made themselves vulnerable to the attacks of of their enemy, particularly the king of Egypt. And again, in the Bible, we've said before, Egypt is always a type and a picture in the Old Testament of the world. That is the fallen system of the world, the unsaved world. That's what Egypt is a picture of. That's why the children of Israel were in bondage and slavery. Remember at one point in time in Egypt, they were slaves and they cried out to God for deliverance and God sent them a savior, a deliverer in Moses who then set them free from their existence in Egypt, their slavery and brought them into the promised land. Well, it's a picture of how that's how salvation comes. We're in bondage, we're in the world, the world system has fallen, it's under the rulership of an evil king, the devil, the king of Egypt, if you would, who's the ruler of the darkness of this present age. Uh, and Jesus comes as our deliverer and he sets us free, if you would, from a life in Egypt and slavery and he brings us not into a promised land but into a promised life. 
where we experience God's ideal and God's blessing and what it means to live free from slavery and bondage to the harsh rulership of Pharaoh or a king of Egypt that's just dictating us in a life of slavery. Well, here, very interesting, the king of Egypt comes up because they transgress, they make themselves vulnerable. And look, that's an important spiritual lesson because whether it be a nation whether it be a family, a people group, or whether it be an individual, when we start to transgress against the Lord, we make ourselves vulnerable to attacks of the enemy. In a sense, when we tell God we don't want to do things your way, we have no interest in following your will or obeying your word, then basically God says, okay, then you are choosing to step outside of my boundaries a blessing and safety and you're choosing to make yourself vulnerable in a sense you're saying take your hand off of our life god i don't want your hand on my life and so look if god takes his hand off of our life or lets us step outside of the sphere of his love and boundary and goodness then we're going to make ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of the devil and the bible tells us peter says that our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour the devil's looking for people to prey upon. The safest thing for us is to stay in the will of God, obeying the word of God, so that we don't make ourselves vulnerable to attacks of the enemy who's always looking for someone to devour. Well, here, because they transgressed the Lord, that's the main reason it says here specifically that the Lord allowed for the king of Egypt to come up against them. Verse 3, with 1,200 of his chariots and 60,000 horsemen and people without number, quite an overwhelming enemy attack, who came out of Egypt, the Lubim and the Sukim and the Ethiopians, together with them as a confederation. And verse 4, notice, he began to have success. The enemy did. The enemy, it says, took the fortified cities of Judah, that is the cities that at one time were strengthened and had resistance. They had no resistance because they were weakened when they turned away from the Lord. So he came up, he overcame the fortified cities and ultimately came to the capital city of Jerusalem where he drove all of the people and the leaders too as kind of a last stance there. So again, we see this picture here of not only the enemy coming and attacking, but the enemy actually beginning to conquer. And now he's starting to take territory and he's starting to overcome them in the midst of their weakness in the same way that that's what happens when we begin to turn away from the Lord or rebel against the Lord, we start losing ground. And areas where we once were strong and we were able to resist and we were kind of fortified in our life. We weren't indulging those sins anymore. We've had victory over these areas. Well, we start transgressing against the Lord. We ain't going to make it in our own strength. The enemy's going to come up and he's going to start conquering territories that we once had fortified and strong in our lives. And we're going to begin to let the enemy begin to take ground and territory. And so he's taking ground, drives them back to Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, And then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah, notice, who were now gathered in Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord. So in the midst of their rebellion and disobedience, they're now suffering the consequences of their own sin and transgression against the Lord. And what does God do? God sends word to them. God sends his word to them in a prophetic way to try and awaken them to get their attention, to repent and to turn back towards him. And the Lord is always willing to reveal our error to us. I so appreciate that. 
whether it's through a prophet like this, a prophetic word that comes that's going to rebuke the people and reveal their error to him, or whether it's just through the prophetic word of God. That, that if we get into the word of God or we avail ourselves to listen to the word of the Lord, he's always faithful in our lives to bring a prophetic, timely word to reveal to us what's going on and where we have failed. So the, the prophet Shemaiah comes to them and says to them in the midst of this, thus says the Lord, notice, here's the Lord's word, you have forsaken me, literally abandoned me, and then just turned away. They had abandoned, forsaken their relationship with the Lord to a great degree and therefore, direct connection, conditional term, you've forsaken me relationally and therefore I have left you in the hand of Shishak. So the Lord specifically tells them the reason why you are suffering the difficulty and the problems that you are circumstantially, the Lord says the defeat in your life, the difficulties in your life, the problems that you've brought upon yourself, the Lord says it's directly connected to the fact that you've, for, you've forsaken me. You, you've abandoned the relationship that we once had. You've turned away from that as far as what you were doing. And as a result of that, you're now experiencing, the Lord says, basically the consequences of that. And more specifically, they were experiencing the discipline, if you would, of the Lord because the Lord loved them. And so therefore, he was allowing them to experience discipline in life consequences and difficult circumstances. Those were the disciplinary acts of the Lord for their wrongdoing. He says, because you've forsaken me, therefore I have. I've left you, he says. I'm the one behind this. He says, I've left you in the hand of Shishak and what you're going through in the problems and circumstances. He says, it's actually my disciplinary actions to try and correct you to get you to change course to realize what you're doing wrong. And the Lord loves us, and because he loves us, the Bible says he chastens or disciplines those he loves. It's actually an act of his love, like any good or loving parent. If their child rebels or is disobedient, if they love their child, they're going to discipline. They're going to correct them. And that's not punitive. It's actually something that's intended to be corrective and helpful to spare them from complete destruction to try and awaken them to their wrongdoing and to get them back on track. The writer of Hebrews describes this from a New Testament perspective. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise, that is be angry or, or, or irritated or, or look negatively upon the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, chastening and discipline in our lives sometimes is an indication that we at least belong to the Lord. See, if you can do what's wrong and rebel and, and just derail on how you're living and everything just keeps going on hunky-dory in your life and you're not having any opposition or difficulties and, and you're not experiencing problems and, and consequences, that's a bad thing. Because that's basically God saying, well, you don't belong to me and your father, the devil, is just letting you destroy your life because he doesn't care an ounce about you. Because see, when you belong to God, he loves you 
And God says, if you're going to do that, I'm going to bring some misery in your life and I'm going to bring some difficulty and problems and hardship because I don't want you to destroy yourself because I'm a good father. And so I'm going to let you experience some consequences to show you that I love you and that you belong to me and I want you to get back on track. So he says, furthermore, we've all had human fathers who've corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastens us as seem best to them, but he, that is God, our father, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So see, when the Lord brings those disciplinary experiences into our life to correct us the bible says the best thing to do is to recognize god thank you that you love me enough not to let me get away with things when i'm doing what's wrong thank you that you love me enough to bring some disciplinary action to rebuke me somehow whether somebody's voice or through some situation that you you challenge me you break my pride you humble me you let me experience some hard things in such a way that it comes corrective and the bible says the best thing to do in the midst of that is not to resist it it's actually to appreciate it and just to lean into it and to embrace it you know, sometimes we make the biggest mistake, I think, sometimes we always want to spare everybody from consequences. You know, somebody does something wrong. We want to jump in right away and protect them from it. And sometimes God's going, what are you doing? I'm trying to correct something here. You're not helping something. And out of, and out of pity and love, I just like, we want to spare our children and we want to spare our friends and spare our family. And so we're bailing everybody out financially and getting people out of their problems and doing everything. Again to, oh, we don't want to make them struggle and suffer. And sometimes God's going, and I'm trying to make them struggle. In a loving way, I'm trying to make them suffer. So they learn. Because the little bit of suffering God's saying that they're experiencing in my spanking is actually maybe what's sparing them from complete self-destruction if they stay on that trajectory. And so sometimes the Lord's doing something in the lives of others and we don't want to interfere with that. And many times the Lord is doing this in our own lives and the best thing to do is just lean into it and embrace the consequences and let them have their purpose. It says to train us because it trains us to not want to go back down those paths again. You know, you eat a harvest full of bad fruit. Usually that's a pretty good encouragement to not want to plant those same seeds ever again, right? You eat some bad fruit and you go, I am never, ever, ever going to plant that kind of fruit again. This has been miserable. And it's when you finish eating that field of bad fruit that goes away, it's kind of an incentive to just keep planting good seed and not to want to go back and plant those seeds ever again. And then it serves its good purpose in our life. We've been trained by it. We've been taught. And so the Lord says, this is why I let Shishak come to help, to, to correct and to discipline. I've let you fall into his hand. So verse six says, so the leaders of Israel, look, God's, God's ways work. Look, watch this. Verse six, the leaders of Israel and the king, what does it say? Humbled themselves. God broke their spirit. They humbled themselves and they even said, here's confession, the Lord is righteous. In other words, the Lord's right in doing this. At this point, they humble themselves and they say, you know what? What we are experiencing is right and God's right for correcting us. 
they're not angry at God. They're not, how could God let this happen? They're saying, you know what? No, it's good that God let this happen. The Lord is right to correct us like this. The Lord is right to let us experience some of the bad fruit of our own ways. And they say, God's right. We, we can't dispute. And they humble themselves so that we have a, a humility of heart here. There's now confession, if you would. And verse 7 says, And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, that is, when the Lord saw there was a change of heart, when the Lord saw it, and the Lord sees the difference. You know, sometimes people feign to, to have humility after they do wrong things. Sometimes people give the impression they want to confess or repent. But it says here, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves. You know, there have been times when I've interacted with people and they give the impression they're humbling themselves in the midst of an initial conversation or maybe some first indications. And then you come to realize, to me, it looked like they were humbling. But the Lord says they haven't humbled themselves yet. I know when they've humbled themselves. I know when there's been a true change of heart. It says when the Lord saw, because he sees the genuine condition of the heart, when he saw that they had truly humbled themselves, which is what ultimately is a, a good place to be. That indicates genuine heart change and repentance. And that's God's intention. That's why he does what he does because he wants to bring a broken spirit of pride and rebellion. And when the Lord saw they finally humbled themselves, notice again, the word of the Lord then came through the prophet Shemaiah once again saying, they have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. That's called mercy. Notice, some deliverance. Well, no, no, God, we said we're sorry. We said we're sorry. We want complete deliverance. Get us out of all the problems, all the issues, all the consequences. We said sorry. And God says, I know you're sorry. But consequences are teachers. And they're the best teachers, God says. And God's a good father and he knows what's best. So what does God do? He gives mercy. What is mercy? Mercy's not getting what we do deserve. It's God kind of restraining the full brunt of the spanking. It's kind of like, you know, a, a father's hand coming through at 90 miles an hour with those powerful spankings on our little bottoms and, and, and somebody kind of catching the hand and, and, and it kind of comes in only at 45 miles an hour, right? So the impacts lessened a little bit. And that's what mercy is, really. Mercy's not getting what we do deserve. And that's what God, God says, I'm going to bring some deliverance now because you humbled yourself. I'm going to restrain the full brunt of the impact of what could have gone wrong what could have happened that would have been much worse if you would have just been hard-hearted in the midst of your rebellion and never humbled yourself. So the Lord says, I'm going to bring some deliverance. And he says, notice my wrath, that's what we never want. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. So he wouldn't let Shishak have complete unrestrained ability to bring the wrath down upon them. He says, I won't use Shishak as my instrument in the way that I could have. Nevertheless, verse 8 they will be his servants that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nation. So God gives mercy to them. He shows grace to them. He's demonstrating kindness. He says, uh, nevertheless, verse 8, they will, however, still for a time be his servants. And he says again, notice, that they may learn something, that they could distinguish the difference between what it's like to serve me or to serve some 
pagan worldly king. They thought it was bad serving me as their king. And that's really what happened, right? We don't want the rulership of God over us. We don't want the Lord to be king and rule over our lives. That's too constraining. That's too restrictive. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We want to do our own thing. And God says, look, you're always going to serve somebody. Everybody serves a master. Wisdom is finding the right master because everybody serves somebody. Whether you serve yourself, whether you serve some passion or some habit or some, you know, life addicting habit or everybody serves some idol. They serve some authority in their life. Everybody. So God says, look, the best thing you can do is serve me. I'm the best ruler there is. And so God says, I'm going to allow them through these experiences to say, "Okay, if you don't want to serve me, then I'll let you serve an evil king for a while. And then you'll be able to distinguish what's better to serve. That's what they would learn through this process. He says, so that they could distinguish for a time, he says, I'll let them actually serve the kingdom of another nation to experience the blessing it really is to serve me instead. So verse nine says, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away, notice, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He also carried away the gold shields which Solomon made. Now, can I hit the pause button and just say for a minute, do you remember all the treasure of Solomon? Remember all that gold? I mean, the immensity. Remember he had just the throne itself was made of ivory and then overlaid with gold. I mean, the excess of the millions and millions probably of dollars in gold and, and just precious stones and the treasure that existed in Solomon's temple. So this wasn't just some minimal loss. This was a significant loss here. It says that Shishak came in and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. He took everything. Notice when the enemy had access into their lives because of turning away from the Lord, the enemy sought to steal away that which was valuable to them that which was valuable in their lives or of value. And I tell you, folks, that is the exact same agenda of the enemy still. The enemy wants to come in and attack and have access because he wants to steal the treasures and the valuable things that exist in your life. That's what he wants to do. He wants to rob and steal and destroy that which is good and valuable in your life, in your family, among the church. He wants to steal away the treasures of the house of the Lord and he also says carried away the gold shield so look what Rehoboam does verse 10 he made bronze shields in their place so they lost the gold shields and he says well man we lost the gold shields but now we got no more gold (laughs) I guess we'll have to make some bronze shields now gold shields remember they were just ornamental they were shields that represented peace you couldn't use gold shields one they were incredibly valuable and two gold such a soft metal it would be worthless in battle So these were just emblematic of peace and of wealth and of rest. Now they're having to make bronze shields to kind of cover up what was lost. And that's what starts to happen, right? You go from a gold standard to a bronze standard. That's how you know life's not going the right direction. God wants us to experience gold standard, if you would, to experience his best. And the devil says, no, no, I want to reduce your standard of living. I want to take you down from a gold standard to not only silver, I want to take you down all the way down to the bronze standard. And that's what the devil does. He wants to just reduce the standard of of God's wealth and blessing and enjoyment and the value of life that we could have under God's blessing 
and to just reduce our spiritual life, to reduce our personal lives. And here Rehoboam's making these other shields in their place. And whenever he entered the house of the Lord, verse 11, the guards would go and bring out these bronze shields and then take them back to the guard room. Verse 12, when he humbled himself, however, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as to not destroy him completely. And things also went well in Judah. I I love the way verse 12 reads, at least particularly in the translation I'm using here, the New King James. It says, when he humbled himself, verse 12, things went well. I have that underlined. When he humbled himself, things went well. There's a great reminder from the Holy Spirit. Why aren't things going well? Maybe God says uh, pride. Maybe because you haven't humbled yourself. But is it not true? Is it not a spiritual principle that is in the word of God and experienced in our lives that when we humble ourselves, things go well? Things go well when we humble ourselves. The Bible says to us in the New Testament that God resists or opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due times. And is it not true that one of the foremost important ingredients in experiencing God's best and God's blessing is humility? When you start mixing humility into your attitude, into your life, and you're willing to humble yourself before the Lord and in situations, it's amazing, truly amazing, how things maybe that weren't going so well can really start to go well because God honors humility. God blesses humility, and when he humbled himself, it says things went well in Judah. And then King Rehoboam strengthened himself, verse 13, in Jerusalem and reigned Now, Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem in the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Verse 14 says he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Notice the cause of why this man did evil because he did not ready his heart to seek after God. Because he didn't make a conscious decision, which we all have to do. We have to prepare our heart to say, I'm going to seek after God. And because he didn't make a conscious decision to seek after God, he sought after and followed after what was evil. And it's so important that we prepare our own heart. I can't control your heart. I can't take responsibility for your heart. I have stewardship and sole responsibility over my own heart. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. Notice, it's like tend in a garden, but God says keep your own heart and you got to be diligent about it. It's something you got to work at. You got to be diligent to keep your own heart and God says because out of there is going to flow all the issues of life. And here, we're told specifically the reason why Rehoboam became an evil man and did evil things was because he didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord. We can prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, and that will keep us from doing evil. The Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, then we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If we're intentional about walking in the Spirit, it protects us from actually walking in our sinful flesh and fulfilling those desires. Verse 15, the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written 
It says in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and Idu the seer concerning genealogies, two extra biblical books which didn't make it into the canon of scripture. The Holy Spirit didn't include them. And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam then rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And then Abijah, his son, reigned in his place. And in the 18th year of the king of Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. So he now becomes the successor to Rehoboam. And it says, he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war also between Abijah and Jeroboam, constant conflict between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We know from the account in 1 Kings that Abijah uh, wasn't really a a very godly man. He only reigned three years. Uh, He did quite a bit of evil. Uh, Here in Chronicles, we get the one thing perhaps good that he did. He kind of did give a a semi-accurate speech here in some of what he says as they're about to engage in battle. And Second Chronicles chapter 13. So this is kind of the one highlight of his life. Most of it uh, wasn't too well. But verse 3 says, Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. But Jeroboam, who was from the northern kingdom, he drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. So two times the amount of soldiers, 800,000 soldiers in the north, 400,000 soldiers in the south. And notice they're basically drawing up in combat position to have an all-out civil war. Not a good thing. The nation, because of its division, because of pride and sin, this divided nation is now about to have a massive civil war. And verse 4 says, Abijah stood on the Mount of Zemarim, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, towards the northern area, And he said, speaking out loud, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave dominion over Israel to David forever to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? Again, a covenant, a contract, a commitment, a promise. And he says, a covenant of salt. A covenant of salt would be a reference to a covenant that was everlasting, a covenant that doesn't become defiled or decay or or change over time. Again, salt in that day was used as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration, so they used salt in their meats and their food to keep things from decaying and corrupting and, and kind of going bad and being no longer useful. Well, so a covenant of salt, the idea was a covenant that was preserved. It was a lasting covenant, a covenant that could not be altered. It wouldn't decay over time. And he says, look, God gave a clear, firm covenant that to the line of David, David's family, that the rulership of the kingdom would be in David's family. So he's accurate in the sense of understanding that theologically. Verse 6, he says, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, he rose up and rebelled against my Lord. Then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. When Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. So he says, you basically exploited the immaturity and the lack of experience that Rehoboam had. That's the only reason you have your power, he's basically trying to say in his reproof here. You you took advantage of Rehoboam when he was inexperienced and wasn't able to withstand you. And now he says, verse 8, you think, notice, you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord. That's never a good idea which is in the hand of the sons of David. 
and you are a great multitude. And with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Again, remember the the golden calf worship was the idolatrous system that Jeroboam established up in the north as soon as the kingdom divided. He became insecure. He didn't want the people to go back down to Jerusalem and worship according to God's prescribed way. So he introduced horrific idolatry into the northern kingdom to preserve his own position. He says, have you not cast out, verse 9, the priests of the Lord and the sons of Aaron and the Levites, that is those prescribed individuals to lead the worship of God's people, and instead made for yourself, he says, priests like the peoples of other lands so that whoever comes, he says, to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of the things which are not even God's, he says. He says, up there in the north, you've totally abandoned everything that's according to God's word and God's way of doing things. And he says, up there, you pretty much let anybody who wants to become a priest. You go on, you get an internet certificate. There you go, you're ordained. You're a priest of whatever God you want. Nothing new under the sun. People do the same today. And he says, you're just letting anybody, just it's, it's a free-for-all up there. Everybody's just a la carte. They're just putting together their own religious ideas. They're making up their own theology and their own gods. And they're basically abandoning the, the, you know, the, the, the very clear authenticity of what God said and saying, you know, we're, we're just going to do things our own way, according to our own preferences. And, you know, many people today want to do the same kind of thing. They just want to create a theology of their own making that works for them. And that's what they were doing in the north. He says, verse 10, but as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. We've remained loyal in Judah, he says. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, the proper anointed men who God selected. And the Levites attended their duties and they burned to the Lord every morning and every evening the burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with the lamps to burn every evening. His point, verse 11, at the end, for we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. He says, we're still doing things in consistency with the word of God, seeking to at least honor the Lord's will. Verse 12 is conclusion. Now look, God himself is with us as our head or as our leader. And his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, here's his caution. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. He says, look, what you're trying to do, he began back in verse 8, he says, is you're trying to withstand, not us, you're trying to withstand the kingdom of the Lord. And and he says, what you are doing is basically resisting and fighting against the Lord himself. And his exhortation there in verse 11, or verse 12, excuse me, is he says, look, do not fight against the Lord because that's not going to prosper. It's not going to work. You're never going to succeed if you fight against the Lord. And yet, if we were all honest, have we not at all at times in our life kind of fought against the Lord and thought somehow it was going to work? right we thought somehow well i know yeah but we decide to fight against the lord to go against god's will or what we know god's word says and we try it for a time and we sprout our wings and kind of do our thing and and we kind of know what god's will is but we kind of fight against it because we don't want it to go the way that god's saying it's supposed to go so we try and resist or fight against god's will and it never works it never succeeds 
It never prospers. It always ends up in loss. So he's saying, look, don't fight against the Lord. He says, you'll never prosper by doing such. Better to submit and do things God's way and and follow what the purposes and plans of the Lord are. That's where prosperity and blessing and success can come. But Jeroboam, not wanting to hear this, caused an ambush, verse 13, to go around behind them. So as he's given a speech, Jeroboam's just kind of ignoring him. He's blocking this out. He doesn't want to hear the truth. And he's setting up an ambush, sending soldiers around the back. So they were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was both front and rear. And they cried out to the Lord and the priests sounded the trumpets. So when they take a look around, they realize, oh my goodness, why we were listening to this here sermon. This guy was set in an ambush and now we're surrounded. We're being ambushed and we're surrounded. What do we do? Verse 15, then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah and God delivered them into their hands. So what do they do when they realize we're being ambushed and we're surrounded and we're outnumbered? They cry out to the Lord. They don't say, well, what do we do? Which, which angle should we go? They just say, help, God, we're being ambushed. We're surrounded. We're overpowered. Help, God. They just cry out to the Lord for help. They shout out to the Lord for his help. And that is always the best thing to do when you find yourself being ambushed, when you find yourself surrounded by circumstances that are just impossible for you to resolve. Stop and cry out to the Lord. Don't start trying to figure out in your mind, okay, well, maybe if we do this and we send a little resources that way and we take on this angle and maybe if we take the rear first. That's what we always try and do, right? We try and resolve the problem, fix it ourselves. We're going to fight off this front. And, then fight. And, and they just, they realize we are being ambushed by the enemy. We need to stop and cry out to the Lord. And God honored it. They cry out to the Lord and it says God intervened and God brought deliverance to the people of Judah, verse 17 says, Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter. So 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. Now let me just read that again because of the civil war. 500,000 men died. 500,000 people died why pride rebellion division that's why God says that things like pride and rebellion and division he hates because those kind of things destroy relationships and people and bring huge devastating consequences 500,000 people died because of pride rebellion and division be very leery of thinking it's okay somehow it's acceptable to have pride be rebellious and to let division have its way the Bible says that God hates those who sow discord among the brethren 
because it, it, it just ravages and causes tremendous devastation. I mean, the loss of life and the, the pain. Imagine the pain of 500,000 people dying. Fathers and husbands and brothers and the, 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 just the whole process of having to deal with 500,000 deaths because of that civil war. Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time and the children of Judah, it says, notice, prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took the cities from him, Bethel with its villages, and Jeshana with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam, notice, did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, for the Lord struck him and he died. And Abijah grew mighty and married 14 wives. So we're doing a little better. We went from 1,000 to what was 68 or so his father had and he's he's down to 14 wives and he begot 22 sons and 16 daughters that's a lot of school clothes to have to buy now the rest of the acts of abijah and his ways it says and his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet idu and chapter 14 we'll then see the next king the godly king asa takes over and reigns in his place. If I could, before we close, and we'll, this is perhaps a good place to close, look with me back at Wooden verse 18, perhaps a good place to conclude this evening. Certainly devastating and tragic events are happening, but verse 18, the Holy Spirit wants us to know the only reason Judah, you see that word, prevailed, had victory, prevailed, overcame, didn't get defeated, had success, victory overcame. That's what prevailed means. Why did Judah prevail? It wasn't because of their own righteousness. It wasn't because they were so smart or so talented or even so godly. It says the reason they prevailed was because they relied on the Lord. That's called faith. How do we overcome? Faith. How are you going to prevail in the situation that's way bigger than you? Faith. By relying on the Lord. Self-reliance is self-destructive. Folks, it's so important that we learn as God's people personally, in our families, as a church family, that we learn to rely on the Lord. God loves when we rely upon him because it gives him a chance to work in ways where we go, there is no way when we were completely outnumbered and the odds were twice as much against us to be defeated that we could have prevailed unless God did it, unless it was God. So how do you prevail in the situation that you're dealing with or you may deal with? Rely on the Lord. It's good to learn to rely on the Lord. Give him a chance to show that he's God rather than trying to stick your hand. Rely on the Lord and let him work. And watch how he helps you prevail in your situation. Shall we stand together?